So a little bit about me. Um, I've been married to my husband for 18 and a half years. Jeff and I met essentially through Salem Alliance. It was at my house because my dad was leading a Bible study that Jeff came to be a part of. Um, he and I knew of each other for about um, five years before we started dating. He would have liked to have been dating sooner. I wasn't sure about this guy who was 11 years older than I was. Um, we married in 1998, and we have three kids. So our son Josiah will be 16 this month. Our son Titus is 14, and our daughter Abigail is 10. Um, some of the formative things as we kind of hone in on what is this seminar actually about, uh, men, women, and marriage, and what does the Bible really say. Um, you need to know that I was raised in a conservative evangelical church that taught that men were to be the leader of the home and gave a fairly small box of what that was allowed to look like. So one of the things that I want to talk about today is what does the Bible really say about this and which parts of our cultural assumptions need to be deconstructed for an accurate view of God's heart for women? Because I would put out there that what I understood of what I was raised with was not an accurate perspective of God's heart for women. But what's in the Bible really does show us that there is a difference between the way male is created and the way female is created. And that in that beauty, Genesis tells us that in God's image, he created them, male and female, he created them. It takes male and female to reflect God's image together. And if we lose the fact that we have distinctions that matter in the midst of the conversation to try to say, but the way the conservative evangelical church has put it for so many years has not necessarily been correct, at least in my opinion, we can swing too far one way or the other and miss some of the beauty in both directions. And so this morning what I want to talk about is just out of my own experience, out of the Bible, um, and hopefully we'll have some time for some questions and conversation discussion between us as a group to just kind of unpack a little bit what is God's heart for this male-female relationship and how does that work in marriage, how does that work in community and in culture, um, what are the ways that it's still not working well, what are the ways that it could work better. So this is kind of where we're going. And so you have to know about me, which you may already know. Uh, I'm a fairly strong personality. Um, I'm a fairly strong leader. I'm fairly opinionated. I am a quick processor who is a decision maker. And this does not fit in the traditional mold of and I grew up in a very traditional family where my dad held the very traditional role of decision maker, leader, authority, um, it, was, it was pretty clear. And so in my mind, this is what a man looks like and this is what the male and female relationship looks like. Therefore, this is what biblical leadership and biblical submission looks like. So for me to be a pretty strong woman with quick decision-making skills and strong opinions, um, to be dating a man who was more soft-spoken, slower processing skills, and um, let me see if I can give you an example. Jeff is so kind that he will come to his opinion and then he will back off with his words so as not to come across too strongly. So, for example, oh, you guys, we just don't have time for all the stories, but I'm going to tell you this one. <laughs> I told you that Jeff and I knew each other for five years before we started dating. He was pursuing me during those five years, and I was not grown up yet and just not sure what was going to go on. I went away to YOM for a year, and when I came back, 
Uh, I was ready to open a door that I had closed. He was not mindful that there was even a door there anymore. So I recognized that I was going to have to bite the bullet and have a difficult conversation if there was going to be any moving forward. And so I did, and there was this particular conversation that I said, hey, I don't know where you're at, but I'm the one who closed the door before, and I'd be interested to see where this might go. He was trying to say, there is no way. And what I heard was, maybe. So this is... <laughs> This is how kind he is. He, he feels something strong, and he'll, he'll back off on his words. And so all of our life, he, so, so, you, so you see this, this softer spoken, gentle, shepherding leader, my husband, who comes and walks alongside people like nobody's business, who has a lot of strength inside, but on the surface, above the waterline, what you see is a marriage between a very vocal, verbal, loud leader, strong woman, and a quieter, thinker, not so quick decision maker, hold back and kind of wait, more sensitive guy. That does not fit your stereotypical conservative evangelical Christian marriage. Um, it landed me in Barbara Fletcher's office when I was in my mid-20s when he, we and I were seriously dating, and I said, Barbara, can this work? You know, is this okay? Um, and it has worked beautifully for um, 18 and a half years. So this is my journey to this topic. Um, another piece of my journey to the topic is that in my growing up years, in the setting that I was in, I heard a lot of teaching on love and dating and marriage and what it was supposed to look like. And as I got into my early 20s, I found that whenever I ran into the Bible verses about submission, that I was just angry. That that was the first emotion that rose up because I just didn't get it. And what I had been taught just made me angry. And so basically the sum total of my understanding of submission was, you know, in marriage, a healthy marriage, the couple will talk things through and both opinions will be respected. But in the end, there has to be a buck stops here so the guy gets to make the decision. This was the sum total of my understanding of submission was that it was decision making and that um, because it was just the way God set it up that when you got to an impasse that it was the husband's job to make the decision. So I've got this, but I'm in my early 20s. I'm not married. I don't have to understand submission, quite frankly. So it was one of those things that was really easy to just set aside and say, I don't have to get this because I don't have to live it right now. So the night that uh, Jeff proposed to me, uh, I came home. Some of you may have heard me say this before. I came home the night he proposed to me. I had said, yes, we're going to get married in about five months. And I said, dear Jesus, it has suddenly become imperative that I understand what you mean about submission. <laughs> And I just have to say that I don't get it. And I wrote in my journal that night and I said, God, I believe your heart for me is good. I believe that what is written in this word is for my good and is for my heart and that you love me. And that an accurate understanding of what this actually says could cause me to thrive and grow and there's a beauty in it. But God, I'm just going to say that I don't think what I've been taught is what submission really is. And so I'm going to wait, and you can show me when it's your time, and I'm just not going to stress out about this. I'm going to live as honest as I can to who you call me to be, and when you want to show me what you mean in your word, when you say the word submission, I'm ready to learn. So this is how I entered marriage. This is, this is kind of my background on this topic. So having said all that, um, I want us to just dive right into Ephesians. Your notes um, have Ephesians 5. 21 to 33, and so I'm just going to read it right off the notes there to us, and we're just going to go through it, um, kind of just section by section, and talk about my perspective of what it means, and like I said, if we have some time, we'll uh, have some time to discuss some of your questions or your thoughts. Somehow I didn't the notes. Yes, no problem. Here you go. Yep. Okay, I've got them right here. Anybody else need a copy of the notes? I need one, too. Mine is incorrect. 
Okay. By the way, somebody asked me last night. I wasn't here last night. I hated to miss it. I was at a basketball game yelling my lungs out. We still lost. You know, <laughs> parents can't control anything. It just is one of those hard realities, I tell ya. It doesn't matter how loud I yell, it doesn't make the ball go in the basket. <laughs> but it was fun to be there last night. And somebody asked me last night, what's your favorite part about your job? And it was late and I kind of thought things through and I gave an answer. But this morning when I got here, I went, oh, ah, my favorite part of my job is you guys. I love being here. I love meeting women. I love seeing those that I know. Um, I love this. So thanks for being here. Uh, it's fun to be here. So Ephesians 5. Um, actually, I've heard my voice enough. Is there somebody who'd be willing to read this loud for us? Thanks, Sharon. Go right ahead. Just straight through? Yep, just straight through. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you, Sharon. So there's this passage where Paul kind of gets off. He, did, he does what I do, which is so gratifying to me. He, he did a squirrel moment. He's talking about men and women, and then he gets off into the beauty of it and how it reflects the church, and he's into things about the church, and he's like, oh, but wait, I was talking about men and women. And he comes back to it. And one of the pieces about that, you guys, is that this matters so much. Because how we get this, number one, it, what we believe about this is also what we believe about God's heart towards us as male and female. Number two, what we believe about this impacts our day-to-day, feet-on-the-ground relationships with the people around us. And number three, what we believe about this plays out in a way that we reflect God's character to the world. And it matters that we get this. It matters how we do men and women and marriage and what is God's heart for us. So I want to start in Genesis. I want to go to original design. Before we start unpacking what he said about men and women in Ephesians, I want to talk about what was God's original design that we see before sin entered the world. Because we know that what we see in God's design before sin entered the world is God's perfect heart on display for how he expected relationships to happen and work. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so we find in the original design that there are two peoples who are partners. It takes both of them to reflect the image of God. And as partners, they have passion. 
It's fascinating to me that God created our sexuality with enjoyment because his first commandment was to be fruitful and multiply. Do you realize that he put the greatest pleasure on earth coupled together with his first commandment? God is not a hard-hearted miser. God is a creative God who longs for us to enter into his goodness. So this, these partners had passion. They had a purpose. Together, God said, rule the earth and subdue it outside of this garden. You guys have to understand, there was already a spiritual battle raging in the area that God had just created. And he put Adam and Eve together, and he said, together, as male and female, as helpers to one another, reflecting the image of God, you will go forth from this garden, and you will be part of my kingdom moving out of this place, and part of this battle being one in the spiritual realm. He gave them everything they needed in that place. He gave them a common purpose, and he gave them intimacy with himself. He was walking in the garden with them in the evening. We presume that that means prior to the fall, he had walked in the garden with them before. At least it was his plan to come and to commune with them. I imagine Adam and Eve together doing their day's work, and then at the end of the day, hey, how'd that go? And they get this wisdom direct from God, and they have this intimacy with him. And so this is the perfect picture of men and women and God. God, even in the, um, if we flip back to where God, or flip forward to where God created Eve, he says, there was no helper suitable for Adam. And that word helper, I'm sure several of you have heard that. That word helper is the word easer. And in Genesis, it's used to refer to Eve. God said there was no helper. And sometimes we get this feeling like, oh, he's got a little helper. It's kind of a, you know, like you've got your two-year-old at the sink and they're helping you with the dishes. You've got a helper. That is not what this word means. This word is actually used over and over and over again in the Old Testament to describe the help that God gives us when he rescues us. This was a strong right arm. This was a helper who would meet and would match and would be part of that passion and that purpose and that intimacy with God. This is the perfect picture that he gave us. And then comes the fall. You know the story. The serpent comes. He tempts them to not believe what God says, and they agree. And I like to think that I would have done better, um, but I know I wouldn't. I know. I know myself, I know that I would have said, oh, there's something I'm missing out on. Oh, I don't want to miss out on anything. I want to know. Oh, there's wisdom I could have that somebody else has, and they're withholding from me. How dare they withhold from me? I want, I want to be in the know of everything. I'd have been right there with Eve. But what we find after the fall, God had told them, don't eat of this or you will surely die. Friends, we live in a world where there is death because of sin. And that is the brokenness that gets between men and women as well. And so we find in the curses in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. That needs no definition. Um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And does that not describe the brokenness that we see in our world and the relationship between men and women? Your desire will be for your husband. The, the, the female tendency to need to be cherished and loved and to need to know how precious we are and to need to have somebody in our life telling us how great we are. And then the male tendency to rule over. And all over the world, we see the ramifications of this curse. And honestly, I told you that my background was traditional um, conservative evangelical. I think 
following the Bible and God's word has brought Christianity a long way. If you look at practices towards women in third world countries, in Africa, in, in Muslim countries, women are seriously suppressed. So I don't want to lose the fact that we have come a long way, but the reality is all over the world, people are still living according to this curse that is, the male will rule over the female, with often a very domineering, authoritative, even abusive hand. And the women will be desiring the men and kind of manipulating and scheming and trying to figure out how to make what they want to have happen, happen. This is the curse. And so when people say, well, God designed it to be this way, God designed it for men to be higher and women to be lower, I say, no, God designed it for men and women to be side by side with a common passion and a common purpose and a common strength, being intimate with him on a regular basis, being fed by him so they can together go out. Jeff and I talk about it this way, just a picture. When we got married, we knew that there are times in marriage that you will fight, that you will have a disagreement, that there will be things maybe very strongly that you're not, you don't see eye to eye on. And one of the things that we talked about was when we came to those places, we didn't want it to be about Jeff against Jennifer. Okay, who's right, who's wrong, let's, let's do this. We wanted it to be, okay, Jeff and Jennifer are partners, and there is a problem, and that problem is threatening to come between us, but it's us against the problem, not us against each other. And the fall created an us against each other between men and women. And God's purpose was us against the problem, together, common passion, common purpose, common intimacy with him, together, let's look at this problem. We are partners in the battle, not enemies in the battle. And because of the fall, the world has lost sight of this. But when we get to Ephesians and this fabulous passage, what we find is Jesus in his redemption, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would forgive all of our sins and he would heal all of our diseases. Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall. Jesus came to redeem us from death. Jesus came to redeem us from everything that the enemy meant for evil and to bring us his good. And so that includes this relationship between men and women. And what happens is when we get into the New Testament and we read some of these passages, we can get confused. We can get, we can say, well, this says that the man gets to make the decisions. And that's what the Bible says. But friends, we need to be Genesis to Revelation biblical scholars who see the whole picture of what God's heart is so that we can better interpret the places where it almost appears as if the Bible is um, contradicting itself. So for example, and this isn't specifically about marriage, but it is about what the Bible says about women. You know, there are passages in the Bible that say that a woman should not teach a man. And as a matter of fact, a woman is not allowed to speak in the church. There are other passages in the Bible that say when a woman prays and prophesies in the church, she should have her head covered. So which is it? Should she have her head covered when she speaks or should she never speak? And then other passages in scripture say that there were daughters of certain elders who were all prophetesses. Well, in order to prophesy, you have to speak. And in order to prophesy to the church, you have to speak in a gathering where the church is present, which as you know, the church isn't the four walls of this building. The church is the body of Christ. And so when we bump into something in scripture that seems like a contradiction, we have to know that God does not contradict himself. And there must be some mystery in there. There must be something unspoken at that time that wasn't written down that would have made sense or connected the dots that we don't have. 
There's got to be something that we don't know. And so in this issue where people have taken some, some verses and said, okay, this says the man is the head of the woman, so women should submit to their husbands in everything, and cause it to mean one small box of things, this then is what it has to look like, have we missed the picture that the original design was not a leveled design? It was not that one has to be above and one has to be below so that there can be peace. The original design was that there would be two together with God as their head so that there could be peace. So let's unpack Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's just start there. Friends, submission is a mutual call to all believers. <coughs> there is no getting around this. Uh, let's look at Ephesians for a second. Uh, sorry, we're already in Ephesians. I'm flipping to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. I'm going to stop there. Friends, I think this is the best definition in scripture of what submission looks like. And it's a call to all believers. It's a universal call to people who would surrender their lives to Christ to say, this is how we are to live in relationship with one another. We are to be like-minded. We are to have the same love. There's that one spirit and purpose again. Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is true in the workplace. This is true in school. This is true with our families of origin. And this is true with our husbands. We're not to be doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, humility is needed in the workplace, in church, in our communities, and in our marriages. Yes, we are to be humble with our husbands. Yes, we are to be in a place where we would say, I might not be right, but this is my opinion. We are to be in a place where we could say, I am sorry, I was wrong. Humility doesn't mean that we're always putting ourselves down. Humility just means that we set each other. I love the way it's been said. Humility doesn't mean we think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. So when humility is a piece of submission, submission does not mean that we think less of ourselves and we put ourselves down a plane from the people we're supposed to submit to. It means that we think of ourselves less and we think of others more. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is a beautiful definition of submission, and this is exactly what God is calling us as wives to do and how to treat our husband. It is also exactly how he's asking all believers to treat each other. We are not being asked as women to do something because of being a lower status. We are asked to do this because, what does it say in this verse? It says, out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. When, when Paul talks about this, he doesn't say, submit yourselves to your husbands because they're better than you. 
Submit yourselves to your husbands because they have more authority than you. Submit yourselves to your husbands because I think men are smarter than you. He says, submit yourselves to your husbands the same way you do to me because this is how you treat each other in the Lord because of who Christ is, because of his sacrifice, because of his redemption, because this is God's upside-down kingdom. This is his way to true peace in the world when we will treat each other with humility and consider others' interests above our own. Friends, by its very definition, submission cannot be demanded. Submission is a willing choice that I make to set down my rights and anything I feel entitled to and to put someone else's needs above my own. (coughs) Submission has to begin with me. If I'm the one submitting, I'm the one making the choice to submit. The instant somebody says to me, you have to submit to me, that is a demand that is actually obligation, that is actually authoritarian, that is actually slavery. If somebody comes to me and says, you have to do what I say because I have authority over you, maybe it's my boss, I won't work for that boss for long. (laughs) I'd rather have a boss who says, you know, Jennifer, you're gifted and equipped and how can I support you and let's, let's both run with this. And by the way, this is part of your job, can you take care of that? Not... You have to do this. And so part of what I believe the evangelical church has missed the mark on over the years is that they've taken submission and they've made it a commandment rather than letting submission be the invitation that God allows it to be to all believers. In order for submission to be the beautiful thing that God wanted it to be, it has to be birthed in the heart of the person choosing to submit. So what does godly submission look like? We've talked about it a little bit. Godly submission is going to reflect a humble, gentle, patient, compassionate, kind spirit. You find those lists in Ephesians and Colossians. Clothe yourselves then with humility, kindness. Um, Fabulous lists that are about how we as believers treat each other. And that's what godly submission looks like. Godly submission is going to consider the interests of others. Godly submission resists a complaining and a critical spirit. And ladies, can I just say that when our desire for our husband is not met, the first thing that comes out oftentimes is criticism. It's a critical spirit. Sometimes it's really subtle, just sarcasm, just under the water, water line. And sometimes it is very overt, very painful, and even abusive. The way that, that women can rail at somebody when they don't feel like they're getting their connections need met. And so in trying to get their needs met, they actually become more critical and more complaining. And that's not a submission, a submissive spirit. Godly submission is a response to an invitation to give up our lives so that we can gain the life God has for us. <coughs> it's a call to selfless living. It's a hard call, but it's a good call. And when it's lived out in our marriages, it is a beautiful call. What submission is not, it is not a one-size-fits-all mold. Just because this is the way it looks in this healthy marriage does not mean that's the same way it's going to look in this healthy marriage does not mean it's the same way it's going to look in this healthy marriage. Between that man and that woman, both in submission to Christ, there might be different ways that this looks. It's not a formula. Scripture rarely gives us a formula. We want it to be easy. We want to go, but can it just say A and then B and and I'll just fit in because then it's just easier. And it just isn't easy. It's messy. There's mystery. We're supposed to lean on the Holy Spirit who was given to us at conversion 
so that we might know how God is leading us to lay down our life for one another, how he's leading us to live on a day-to-day basis. And it's also not an excuse for one person to impose their will on another. We can't use the call to submission as an excuse to allow somebody to impose their will on somebody else. So, moving on. um, hmm. Actually, I want to read this quote to you. I just think it's fascinating. Uh, I was reading a book by Richard Foster, and it's a book about spiritual practices, and he has a whole chapter on submission because submission is a spiritual practice required and, and called for of all believers. So he says, the discipline of submission has been terribly misconstrued and abused from failure to see this wider context. Submission is an ethical theme that runs the gamut of the New Testament. It is a posture obligatory upon all Christians, men as well as women, fathers as well as children, masters as well as slaves. We are commanded to live a life of submission because Jesus lived a life of submission, not because we are in a particular place or station in life. Self-denial is a posture fitting for all those who follow the crucified Lord. Everywhere in the New Testament teachings, the one and only compelling reason for submission is the example of Jesus. Going on, it says, the letters of Paul first call to subordination those who, by virtue of the given culture at the time, are already subordinate, wives, children, slaves. The revolutionary thing about this teaching is that these people, to whom first century culture afforded no choice at all, are addressed as free moral agents. (coughs) Paul gave personal moral responsibility to those who had not legal or moral status in their culture. Are you hearing this? Sometimes we read this in our Western mindset with our awareness of all that we know, and we go, Paul hated women. Paul's the women hater. His are the letters that women don't like because that's just where it's found in scripture. Paul did not like women. And the reality is the fact that Paul even addressed women in his teaching meant that he was elevating women higher than anybody in his culture or his time had ever done. (coughs) The fact that he said you need to submit showed that they actually had a choice to either submit or not. And the culture that he lived in did not believe that women even had that choice. So to finish, Paul made decision makers of people who were forbidden to make decisions. The only meaningful reason for such a command was the fact that by virtue of the gospel message, they had come to see themselves as free from a subordinate status in society. So you hearing this? Women, children, slaves. In the culture at the time that this was written, they have subordinate status. The gospel comes through and it says, therefore in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. And so people start to see themselves as not subordinate. And the only reason to make the command of, oh, but we still lay down our lives for each other, is because people who prior to this time had never seen themselves as having those rights, now are seeing themselves because of the gospel of Christ. So you see, the gospel of Christ returns us to that perfection of the garden, where male and female are side by side with common passion, common purpose, and intimacy with God. Paul urged voluntary subordination, not because it was their station in life, but because it was fitting in the Lord. So let's move on to headship. Let's see where my, there they are. So as we read on in this, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ. Oh, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is savior. And another passage, it goes on to say, as God is the head of Christ. So we've got this metaphor, and over the years, as I've studied men's and women's issues and read all sorts of things, I've heard all sorts of interpretations of this scripture. Head means authority. Head means the top of the body. Head means 
source, like the head of a river is the source of a river. All of those things could be true. I am not standing before you as a theologian, but here is my very, very favorite explanation of this scripture that I have ever heard. The man who was teaching it just said, I prefer to take this metaphor exactly as it was given. So it says that the man is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So rather than going round and round and round and trying to figure out what head means, let's just look at how Christ is the head of the church. It's the metaphor God gave us. And in the passage that takes that a little bit farther, it also says that it's as God is the head of Christ. So why don't we look at how God is the head of Christ? And that will give us the picture of what he meant when he said that man is the head of his wife. Right? You following me? God gave us a metaphor. And, and I'm not arguing with the, the theologians who want to figure out what head means. That's fabulous. But a metaphor is a picture that is meant to show us with a, with a, with a living example of what God meant when he said that the man was to be the head of the wife. So let's just take a look at Ephesians 1, or I'll turn there and you can write it down if you want. Ephesians 1, 19 to 22. Ephesians 1, 19 to 22. And in his incomparably great power for us who believe, the power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So how is God the head of Christ? God is the head of Christ by raising him up to his right hand and giving him authority and empowering him to be over the church. Through his mighty strength, he raised him up, he seated him in his right hand, he placed him far above others, and he gave him all authority in the present age, and he placed all things under his feet. Hmm, interesting picture of what head might mean. <coughs> Maybe head isn't so much about a domineering authority, I'm in charge, as much as a desire to bless and empower. I have all authority, therefore I am going to give you authority. Therefore, I am going to empower you. Therefore, I am going to set you up because I can and because I love you. So let's look at how Christ is the head of the church, flipping to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. It says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what has God done with us? How is Christ the head of his church? By raising us up and seating us with him in the heavenly realms and giving us all blessing. He's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms because he wants to demonstrate his glory and the riches of his grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from ourselves. This is the passage that goes on to say we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That purpose from the very beginning in Genesis. And so God is the head of Christ by raising him up. Christ is the head of the church by raising us up, and man is the head of the wife by being the one who gets to make the final decision and tell her what to do if they disagree. Friends, we've oversimplified this, and we've made our box too small. 
And the problem is we've done a disservice to both men and women because men are left to believe that they're supposed to know the final decision. Men are left to believe that there's something about them that means that they get to, that they get to take authority. And honestly, for some men, this teaching has led to a, an imbalance that has caused them to be unhealthy and to think that the Bible is saying that the way that they are living is correct and it is empowering a selfishness that is honestly not good for them. I dated a guy once, and when we broke up, he thinks he broke up with me. I'm pretty sure that I was the one who made the moves ahead of time that made him decide he needed to break up with me. It's all good. It was mutual. <laughs> when we broke up, here was what he said. He said, Jennifer, and he was a great guy, by the way. This was not some terrible guy. I wouldn't date a terrible guy. He said, Jennifer, the Bible says that the man is supposed to be the head of the wife, and so that means that he's supposed to make the decisions, and you don't really let me make the decisions. For example, when we're going out to dinner, and if I ask you what restaurant do you want to go to, you just tell me what restaurant you want to go to. He said, you should actually give me that decision back. So I should give it to you out of love. This is what biblical manhood and womanhood looks like. Because I love you, I should ask you where you want to go to dinner. And because I'm the leader, you should let me make the decision about where we go to dinner. Okay? Now that is a way oversimplified picture of where some of us have lived. And that is not good for men either. To believe that the church has told them that that's going to be their role. I do not want us to leave this room and raise up and go, women power, that is not what this is about. <laughs> this is about that God's metaphor given to us in Ephesians is that men as the head of their wives would say, I see the beauty in you. I see the strength in you. I see what you have to offer the world. I see what you have to offer our kids and our family. And I want to empower you. I want to raise you up. In this culture, in this society, men have more of a position than women do. It's just a fact. But as your husband, I want to use my position to give you an equal position. I want to use my position to help you thrive, to help you blossom. I have been given an authority. I want to share that authority with you so that all the strength and all the beauty and everything that God put in you has a place to thrive and grow. So in our tiny little box, we have said that the man being the leader of the home means that he needs to be the one who leads the family in devotions around the dinner table at nighttime. How many of you have thought that that's maybe what this should look like or been taught that that's what this should look like? That if the man is the leader of the home, he's going to be the one who initiates that we would pray together. And if he doesn't initiate and I have to initiate, then he's not being the leader and I'm not being submissive. Am I right? Our box is too small. Maybe I have a gift of intercession. And I see something going on and I think, we need to pray. And if I think that that makes me usurping the leadership of my husband to say, sweetheart, we've got to pray about this, then we have missed the boat. We have missed it. If I am a teacher, and it is in my wiring to know how to bring a truth from point A to point B, especially with children, and I live in a home with a two-year-old and a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and I think that I can't bring teaching to our dinner table, because if I do, I will be usurping my husband's leadership. I have missed the mark. And if my husband is threatened by my gifts and strengths, then he needs to do some work with God. And if I am threatened by his gifts and strengths, then I need to do some work with God. My gifts and strengths don't... Here's part of the problem. We have leveled gifts and strengths. 
and we have said this is most important, this is most important, this is most important, and so if you have this, you're higher, and if you have this, you're lower. And that creates the, the culture for us to go, well, then I need to make sure my husband feels like he has the higher gifts and I only step in at the lower gifts so that he feels good about himself. Let's just throw that on its head. Let's say if I as a wife <coughs> can put my husband's interests above my own, and if I can act with humility, and if I can speak to him in love, and if I can build him up, could I value his gifts to such an extent that there is no threat with my gifts? Because I'm not trying to be, as long as we have this mindset that in order for there to be peace, one has to be on top and one has to be on the bottom, there will be constant tension. But when we can grasp the mindset that peace is partners submitted to God, then we can be each other's best cheerleaders and we are not a threat to each other. So what does godly headship look like? It is not one size fits all. There are personality differences. There are leadership style differences. There are gift differences. Just because headship in this family looks like this does not mean it's gonna look like this, does not mean it's gonna look like this. I was talking with a woman a, woman a few years ago and she said, I just don't know if I can marry my boyfriend because I don't know if he can be the leader of our home. I said, well tell me what you expect out of a leader of your home. And she described her dad. She had loved her upbringing. She loved, her parents had a healthy marriage. She loved that picture, but she had then projected that picture onto herself and said, therefore, the man I have to marry has to lead like that. That's not true. There are lots of godly men in this world who are not going to lead the same way her dad did, who are not going to empower and, and share his authority with her mom the way that her boyfriend might share that with her. And so the question isn't, does this look like what, I think it should look like based on what I've seen from other people. The question is, is this person modeling a heart that's so submitted to God, that's listening to the Holy Spirit, that day by day we can listen to God together and together as partners with intimacy with God carry out the purpose that he has for us. So it's not one size fits all. It is servant leadership. I want to read to us a little bit from Matthew 20. <coughs> Yep. You were talking about the Philippians verse. Yeah. The camp that our family goes to, um, a family camp every year. That is the motto. The, it's the Philippians too. It's mm -hmm. on a mural. It's that important that yeah. it's the motto of this entire camp. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So godly headship is servant leadership that doesn't lord it over. So friends, when we hear phrases like, <coughs> when a marriage is in conflict and we hear phrases like, but she's supposed to submit to me because God says, we're experiencing a man who has witnessed leadership as being the thing that gives you permission to lord it over others. And that's not God's kind of leadership. When we witness a woman saying, but he has to love me the way Christ laid down. He, he can't go golfing because he's supposed to give himself up for me. We are, express, we are witnessing a woman who is not considering others above herself, who is demanding her rights. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't ask your husband not to go golfing. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't ask you to consider his needs. But how we talk about it matters. 
We can have the same conversation with I statements. I feel neglected when you golf every weekend. I'm lonely, I'm tired, and I'm having a hard time keeping up with all the kids need. That is such a different statement than, you don't care about me because you golf with your buddies every weekend. So as we read on, it tells us that this is a mystery, and we're gonna kinda hustle through these last couple points here. In the mystery thing, I would just say this. There is so much of faith, there's so much of the Bible that is on this spectrum of tension. And I want to read you a quote that I read one time on paradox. It was from uh, another Richard Foster quote. I like Richard Foster. It says, the life and teachings of Christ were often couched in paradox. Paradoxes, of course, are only apparent contradictions, not real ones. Their truth is often discovered by maintaining a tension between two opposite lines of teaching. Although both teachings may contain elements of truth, the instant we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, the truth becomes distorted and disfigured. So let's just take faith and works for a second. Okay, just get it off this thing about men and women and, and look at it here. There are teachings in the Bible about grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself so that no one can boast. And then there are teachings in the Bible about works. Show me your faith by showing me your works. And if I don't see any good works, then there is no faith there. Which is it? Is it faith or works? Well, we know from years of being in the church and teaching and good biblical teaching that you have to hold a tension between the two. That it's both. It is absolutely 100% grace. There is nothing that I can do to earn my way into heaven. But it is absolutely 100% work. There is something that I am called to do in response to the grace that God has given me that will make my life look different, that will cause me to look more like a follower of Christ. My work will not exclude me from heaven, but grace alone. Uh, years ago, I heard a story of a man who had come into a pastor's office, and he said, you know what? I figured it out. God says that it's by grace, so I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live it, and right before I die, I'm going to ask forgiveness, and it's all going to be good because it's all grace. Friends, that doesn't actually reflect a heart that's actually been touched by the loving and the transforming grace of God. And so we hold those two intention. Either one of them, taken to their extreme, creates cults. Grace taken to extreme creates people who have no righteousness. And works taken to extreme creates legalism. And so we hold those two intention. And so we do the same thing with wives respect your husbands and husbands love your wives. If you take the submission thing too far, you end up with an abusive society. If you take the love your wife as Christ loved the church thing too far, you end up with a whole bunch of entitled women who aren't very pretty. When we give entitlement to one or the other, we create a monster that neither one wants to be. But when we hold those two in tension in the mystery, of it's not one size fits all. It's not going to look the same for other. There's not a formula. I can't stand up here and tell you the man does this, the woman do this, and then God is pleased. There's this tension, and it comes in living <laughs> ourselves, living it out as followers of Christ and as his believers. Because when we emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, the truth becomes distorted and disfigured. And we're back to what we started with. How we live this truth matters because this truth is a reflection of who God is. Male and female, he created them. In God's image, he created them. And if we don't live this truth well, then the truth to the world becomes distorted and disfigured. And they see a reflection of God that is not God at all. So it says, wives, 
Each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And in his redeeming way, he takes us back to the garden, to the beginning of what he had planned. Two people, common passion, common purpose, strong help to one another, submitted to God and in intimacy with him, going out to be fruitful and multiply and to rule the world and subdue it, where there is still a huge battle raging. Ladies, this world needs us to stand with our men and fight together and not be fighting against each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful picture. Thank you for your design. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the difference it has made over centuries. And yet, God, we still are people who don't quite get it all, and we, and we won't. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to lead us. And Lord, each woman in this room has a unique story. Married, unmarried, divorced, widowed, in a difficult marriage, in a thriving marriage. You alone know. And God, I pray that this morning you would give her a sense of what your heart for her is. The beauty in you that is reflected in her. May we walk this out in a way that is humble, that is loving, and that embraces the truth that you made men and women different and you made us to partner well together. In your name, amen.